So what do the people of Israel need more than anything? We'll answer that today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome, friends, to our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. This is Michael Brown. Phone lines are open for Jewish-related questions. So if it's a Hebrew question, if it's a question about Judaism, Jewish tradition, if it's a question about Messianic prophecy, question about Israel, the Jewish people today, any of those fit on a Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, or about the elections right now, what's happening currently, 866-348-7888. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. I'm going to unpack a little bit more where we stand with the Israeli elections, but it's really very fluid. I just want to make sure you understand the dynamics. And we talked about it some on Tuesday, but I want to revisit that now that the, the votes are basically all counted, just about all counted, and explain where things stand and how things work. But before we get into any of that, before we get to your calls, I want to answer this question about what the people of Israel need more than anything. Is it a strong economy? Because without a strong economy, they can't have a strong national defense. And without a strong national defense, they'll get destroyed by hostile neighbors. Is it perhaps peaceful relations with their Palestinian, Arab, Muslim neighbors? Is, is that the biggest thing Israel needs? Does Israel need primarily harmony? because there's such a rift between the secular left and the religious right? Is that what Israel needs more than anything? Well, all these things are important, and all these things are worthy of attention, and all these things are worthy of prayer, but I'm going to bottom line it and say exactly what you'd expect me to say. The people of Israel need Jesus. The people of Israel need Yeshua, the Messiah. No one else will solve their problems Nothing else will answer the ultimate questions. And even if you have peace in this world, that's quite secondary to the bigger issue of eternity and being right with God in this world and in the world to come. Traditional Judaism will not save the Jewish people. No. And the Torah, if it does not lead to the Messiah, will not save the Jewish people. Look, Paul lays this out very plainly in Romans 3. Yes, theoretically, if you could live a righteous life just by the law of God written on your heart, then you're righteous. And if you could live a righteous life by following the commands of the Torah, then you're righteous. But rather than the Torah enabling us to live a righteous life, it it reveals our sin. The Torah in and of itself, and, and Paul says it plainly in Romans 7, is holy and just and good. The commandment is holy and just and good. Everything about it is right and good, okay? And even in, even in areas where, for example, Matthew 19, Jesus explains that divorce was given at all because of the hardness of human hearts. Still, what's there is far better than what human beings would come to on their own and far better than the surrounding cultures. And, and in the law, we get a revelation of the character and nature of God. So the law itself is beautiful and wonderful. Don't covet. It is, is beautiful and, and wonderful. Lotach mod in Hebrew is beautiful and wonderful. But Paul says that commandment 
cause sin to come alive in him. In other words, it's, it's just like you're walking past a, a wall when you're a kid, you know, and, and there you see it. You don't touch what paint. What's the first thing you Oh, maybe touch it, right? Don't look at this. Oh, what? And you want to look. Don't think about this. Oh, why can't I think about that? That's human nature. So the more that we try to obey the Torah, the more that we seek to live in obedience to the Torah, the harder we try. If we're honest with ourselves, we're sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit, we recognize we fall short. And then when you add on the many rabbinic traditions that, that are more stringent in many ways and add on further commands beyond what God gave in the, in the written Torah, it becomes even more and more difficult. Or just the, the foundational command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Who does that perfectly ever? And, and who tries hard to do that without recognizing that there's flesh, there's pride, there's distraction, there's, there's lack of devotion? The more righteous a person is, the less righteous they think they are because they realize how far they have fallen short of God's perfect righteousness. So faithfulness to the Torah means a recognition that we need atonement and a recognition that we need the Messiah and that we need a great high priest intercede for us and we need a prophet to bring God's word to us. In other words, we need an intermediary or a series of intermediaries. And what we ultimately find revealed through the Son of God is that he is the one for all mediator, that, that he is our great high priest, that he is the prophet who brings the word of God to us that he is a greater Moses, that he takes the place of all the blood sacrifices, that his once and for all death on the cross is not some later Christian pagan doctrine, but something taught in the Jewish scriptures, that all of us like sheep have gone astray and each one has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. So when you pray for Israel, pray however you feel led to pray and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And pray that God would establish Jerusalem the praise of all the earth, as per Psalm 122 and Isaiah 62. By all means, pray for those things. But pray in particular for the salvation of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The most, the most devout rabbi on the planet needs the blood of Yeshua. The most devoted, sweet, caring, traditional Jewish woman raising her kids as best as she understands in the fear of God, she needs the blood of of Messiah. There's not a separate covenant with Jewish people by which they get in. And, and as Paul writes in Galatians 2, if righteousness could come by the law of Moses, then Messiah died in vain. We didn't need him to die. So the number one issue for me, the number one concern is always Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus. And anything else that happens until then, as important as it may be, as many lives as it may save, ultimately, it is only a band-aid on deeper problems. In other words, if you want to see lasting peace in the Middle East, obviously I rejoice when there are no terrorist attacks. I rejoice when, when innocent civilians are not killed. I'm thrilled that weeks and months can go by and you don't hear reports like that. In fact, when I was in Israel, a recent tour, I believe it was last year, um, don't remember exactly which tour it was, but there was a, a young couple from South Africa. If you're listening, you'll remind me of the specific year. I, I know exactly where we were when we were talking. We were, we were coming back from when I did a radio broadcast at, at a nearby location, a few minutes from the hotel, and it was maybe 11 at night, and we were walking back, and the streets were peaceful and calm, and, and this couple was saying to me, boy, it's safer here than where we live in South Africa. We wouldn't be on the streets in our home city at this hour just walking 
like this. They felt perfectly safe in Israel. I'm thrilled with that. I thank God for that. But I know ultimately, just like here in America, I thank God for the relative peace and, and the abundant prosperity in, with which we live on a daily basis. And yet I understand that we need the Lord, that ultimately the problems that we have as a society, as a nation, will not be solved through political means. So the number one thing to pray for when you pray for the Jewish people is to pray that God would open hearts and minds, Jewish people around the world, people living in Israel, secular, religious, God would open their hearts, God would open their minds, God would reveal Jesus, the Messiah, to them. Do I want to see all Jews convert to Christianity? Well, by convert to Christianity, if you mean stop being Jewish and join a new religion, no. I want them to embrace Jesus as Messiah and Lord and submit to him. Now, if they do that, and it ends up being a very Christian expression, well, praise God as long as it's biblical. If they do that, and it's a Jewish expression, but absolutely scriptural and based on New Testament truths, praise God. If Jewish people come to faith and end up joining a local church, getting baptized, joining a local church, and being lovers of Jesus, if Jewish people end up coming to the faith, getting immersed in mortar, same baptism, getting immersed, becoming part of a local Messianic Jewish synagogue, praise God. If Jesus is being exalted, if he's being followed as Lord, praise God. But my goal is not to see some Orthodox rabbi shave his beard and, and buy a cross and, and, and then beyond that say put a Christmas tree in his house. No, that's not my goal. And that's not God's goal. God's goal is to see this man recognize his need for forgiveness in a deeper way than he ever has. Recognize that only Jesus the Messiah can pay for his sins, our sins, my sins, your sins. Cry out to God for mercy. Be granted true repentance in a new heart and become a born again child of God with Jesus Yeshua as his Lord and master and God as his father, enjoying an intimacy with him that he never knew before, a transformed heart and life that he never knew before, and an empowerment to live a holy life beyond what he ever knew before. Well, is he going to go to church on Sunday? Well, if he is circumcised when he gets saved, 1 Corinthians 7, doesn't become uncircumcised. New Testament never changes the Sabbath to Sunday. That actual change in the official way comes hundreds of years later. If he continues to set apart the seventh day as holy to God and worships with other believers who love Jesus, wonderful. Praise God. Well, is he going to stop celebrating Hanukkah and start celebrating Christmas? Well, from what we know, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, and it's based on what God did delivering the, the Jewish people from the, from the Maccabees and his miraculous intervention 160-something years before the time of Jesus. What's wrong with celebrating Hanukkah? What's wrong with that? And where does the New Testament tell us to celebrate Christmas? <laughs> In other words, the goal is not to get someone to be a traditional Christian. The goal is to get someone to be a New Testament disciple. And that's where we give our labors to. So our own ministry, uh, I'm talking about outside of our school of ministry and our missions organization, just ask Dr. Brown proper, not Fire School of Ministry and Fire International. But we have three R's that we live by, revival, revolution, redemption. Revival in the church. We're burdened for that day and night to see the church come alive, to see the church walk in purity and holiness and the love of God and refreshing of the Holy Spirit and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And with that, taking the gospel to the nation. So revival in the church means explosion of world missions. Revolution meaning a Jesus revolution in society. Revival in the church, revolution in society, meaning that God so transforms us that through the gospel, we see transformation come in the culture around us. And then the third R, redemption in Israel. 
seeing Jewish people come to faith, seeing Jewish people born again, seeing Jewish people discipled. We're involved in some very important work within Israel right now that has tremendous potential. Please pray for us. And if you want to stand with us, if you want to become a monthly supporter, a torchbearer, and help us reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the unique way God's equipped us to do, and helping believers do the same in Israel, by all means, stand with us. Go to askdrbrown.org today, askdrbrown.org. Go there, click on Donate, and then click on Torchbearer. Look at all the benefits that come your way every single month as we pour back into you as monthly supporters. And then you help us with a dollar or more per day to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I guarantee you the day you stand before God, you'll be amazed at the heavenly reward waiting for you and the souls who have come to faith. All right, we'll be right back. Going to your calls next. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, if you're not familiar with that tune, Hava Nagila, it's actually from Scripture. Come, let us rejoice and be glad. 866-34-TRUTH. It's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown taking your Jewish-related calls. Now is the time to sign up for our next Israel tour. This will be the first time ever that we're going in consecutive years. The first time ever. So, God willing, May of next year, it's a perfect time to go. It's a beautiful season, great time to go to Israel. And uh, we filled one bus. We're in the process of filling the second. We'll only have two buses going. That's it. So about 100 people. So some have gone with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and that's how they do it. And I'm sure it's a great tour, and they do. But this way, we get to know everybody better. We get more intimate time together. And again, we call it Holy Fire in the Holy Land because the way we do it, you have the benefit of an amazing tour on the ground. And it's not a political tour. It's a biblical tour. It's a biblical tour. An amazing tour on the ground with amazing tour guides. And then at key locations, I add in additional teaching because they do a fabulous job with all the details in the archaeological sites and the historical backgrounds. So then I will show up at certain key sites as well and do special teaching just to enhance it. You know, one of my favorite is, is to go on Mount Carmel. Yeah, one of the first days where Elijah called on fire from heaven. Just amazing time and looking out at, at, at Har Megiddo, Armageddon. Yeah, amazing. And then water baptisms in the River Jordan, which when I was first asked to do it, I thought it was hokey, but now are a highlight on every tour. I, I can't believe how sacred it is. But then, aside from us having meals together at night, hanging out, every night we're doing something together. If you want to, we're doing it. I'm doing a Q&A. I'm doing a special teaching. We're praying together. We're doing a radio show. So there's a constant effort to be spending time together, pouring into you so you get the best by day and by night. So go to our website, AskDrBrown.org. You'll see it right on the homepage, the tour. Join us. Sign up today. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Will in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for joining us on the Line of Fire. Thank you for having me, Dr. Brown. You're welcome. So I had a, 
had a question I was hoping that you could answer. I don't have a terrible lot of time. Uh, maybe it's something that you broached in the, in the past before. Um, however, I wanted to ask about um, in Jesus' day, in the Jewish time there, what did Jesus have to do, or what would the rabbinical leaders been looking for, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, etc.? What, what were they looking for in a Messiah? Right. There was no unified expectation at that time. Uh, some of the groups like Sadducees didn't even have that as a strong emphasis. Uh, there was not a unified, this is what we are expecting. Any more than Christians today have a unified view of exactly what happens with the second coming or a millennial kingdom. There are different views, and especially then, less things had been formulated. You could say, though, the, the most common view would have been more of a, of a militaristic Messiah, that the Messiah would be a king who would fight the enemies of Israel and would liberate them uh, from their captivity. That probably would have been the most common view, but certainly not the only view. Some have even argued that there was an expectation of a suffering Messiah. There's, there's debate about that. But when you get into the rabbinic literature in the centuries following, there's a lot of speculation without a detailed assessment of a, that we know it's going to be this, this, this. You, you really have to wait until the 12th century. The writings of Moses Maimonides, so he's 1135 to 1204. So uh, the writings of Maimonides in his Mishnah Torah, in his Hilchot Malachim, Laws Concerning Kings, especially in the 11th chapter, that he lays out the requirements of the Messiah. And this is what traditional Judaism basically says to this day, that he has to do certain things. Uh, For example, he has to regather the exiles. He has to rebuild the temple. He has to bring the nation of Israel into obedience to the law of God, which for him meant the written law and the rabbinic traditions. He has to fight the wars of the Lord and fight the enemies of Israel. And then through that, of course, establish peace. If he does those things, if he does a couple of them, it's like, mm, probably the Messiah. If he does all of them, he's definitely the Messiah. And there's not an emphasis on his atoning death or resurrection that's completely excluded. Uh, but this much we do know, Will, in that in the Gospels, the disciples couldn't understand why he was going to die. Why you, why you gonna, what do you mean you're going to die? You're the Messiah. What do you mean you're going to die? So they seem to have more of that same expectation that he's going to be a political leader. So yes, a teacher sent from God, yes, a prophet, yes, a miracle worker. Those expectations seem also have been current in the first century. But ultimately, one like David, who would fight the wars of the Lord and defeat the enemies of Israel, liberate the Jewish people from Roman captivity. And when he doesn't do those things, people think, how can you be the Messiah? Even John the Immerser had questions once he was in prison. And that's why after his death and resurrection, Luke 24, he opens up the scriptures. He opens up the minds of his disciples like, there it is. It's all there. It's all written that he had to die. He had to rise from the dead. So not just work miracles and heal the sick, but he had to die. He had to rise from the dead. And he has to ascend to heaven. He has to rule and reign until his enemies become his footstool. Hey, Will, thank you for asking the question. Much appreciated. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Richard in Florida. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you, sir. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, I had two questions. My first question is, um, it's about uh, the descendants of Cain being called Mm -hmm. Kenites. 
And okay. I was just asking because I've I've seen doctrine where um, they preach that you know when Cain slew um, Abel, and then um, God uh, banished him, right? And he then went on and uh, exited the land, and then throughout the scriptures, um, like when the Pharisees, so the Kenites kind of. They're not, I guess, keep Jewish Israelites, and uh, but throughout the, the Bible that they try to infiltrate, I guess. No, you're thinking of Canaanites, as, not as Kenites. A, you're thinking of Canaanites. Well, it, 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 they're right, but they're they're for some reason I, they're called Kenites, and so like yeah, yeah, yeah right. You ha- you up, have a few right. You have a few people that are called Kenites, but they're never mentioned in the New Testament. Right, right, in the Old Testament. Yeah, the Kenites were a subgroup of the various groups that lived in the land of Canaan. They were one of a number of groups, right. For example, um, they're mentioned in Genesis 15, land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, etc. So they were just one of the different people groups, yeah. And then, um, so they infiltrate, and then, so like when the Pharisees come to the river where... uh, John is going to baptize uh, Jesus, and he tells them that they are the synagogue, you know, they're the descendants of the synagogue of Satan. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say he that doesn't? they're descendants of the synagogue of Satan. No, he doesn't oh, say not. that. Um, he calls them hypocrites and a brood a of vipers. Right, but he doesn't, he doesn't say anything oh, about the synagogue of yes, Satan. Yes, right. So they were, they the, were, the, yeah, so uh, what does this have to do with the Kenites? I, I'm sorry, but I don't understand. Well, I, I'm sorry. I, the... the the beginning is in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God. I yeah. guess the beginning of that is where they uh, Eve uh, instead of taking a fruit, they disobeyed. I guess in a sexual orientation. Doesn't say that with the devil doesn't doesn't say that. That's a myth, complete myth. Not as okay. not as nothing in Scripture about that. One hundred percent myth. Okay. Okay. And then my second question was, what is your interpretation on the lost ten tribes? Because I've also seen where a lot of people say that majority of them went over the Caucasus Mountains and eventually spread throughout Europe, and and that's where a lot of them settled throughout the uh, yeah. It's it's of it's Europe. it's highly it's it's highly unlikely that the majority were probably lost to history scattered in exile and, and lost to history. At least many were lost to history. Uh, others did scatter to other parts of the world, and, and that's why you have Israelite DNA among tribes, say, in Africa and some other parts of the world because there was a scattering and then an intermarrying with the peoples there and then those peoples converting to Jewish faith, and so they would still preserve these customs even in these other countries. Uh, and then many others just joined themselves to the kingdom of Judah. In other words, they fled south, and they became part of the kingdom of Judah. And that's why among the Jewish people today, all of the different 12 tribes would actually be represented. So there are some that are scattered. We have no idea what happened to them. They're gone. There are others who were scattered into many different parts of the world, intermarried, became part of the people there, but those that converted uh, to Judaism 
and to follow the God of Israel, they preserved the Jewish heritage. So you do, you do have them in different parts of the world. But the idea that, say, Great Britain is, is the, you know, the lost tribes of Israel or America lost tribes of Israel, no, that, that to me is, is utterly bogus and there's no good academic support for it. But certainly the majority that continued with a Jewish identity are those that joined the, the province, the kingdom of Judah, and that that's why the New Testament can reference the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, even in the New Testament days, not just meaning those scattered around the world, but represented among the Jewish people. We even have some of that different representation uh, right within New Testament writings where someone from another tribe is actually referenced as within the people of Israel. All right, appreciate the questions, and we'll be back with more. We'll talk about the Israeli elections too. Thank you. With your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to our thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast, 866-348-784 through Jewish-related calls. Just a reminder, the new revised expanded edition of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood is now available released this week. The first edition came out in 92 and has never gone out of print remarkably. Now we're able to put a lot of time, effort, energy into revising, updating, improving, expanding this book. Our hands are stained with blood. Some of the most eye-opening stuff you will ever read, but you'll finish with hope, with expectation. Before I go to the phones, let me try to sort out for you where we are at in the Israeli elections. All right, so just the basics again. Israel has a Knesset, parliament. It does not have a Senate and a House of Representatives like we have in America. It has one primary governing body, body, the Knesset, which has 120 seats. In order to lead the nation, you have to have a majority of seats, so 61. So let's just say this was Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Let's say that the Republicans got 61 seats, so they got that much percentage of the vote, and the Democrats got 59 seats, so then the Republicans would have the leading national government and have the most sway and influence in terms of what happens, and Donald Trump would be the the prime minister if this was Israel, right? But it doesn't work like that because you have a lot of parties— And no party is going to get enough to get the majority of seats. So you have to form a coalition. So in this case, the Cajol Lavon party, the blue and white party, is going to end up with, say, 33 seats. And the Likud party, which is Netanyahu's party, the other is the party of Benny Gantz, the the Likud party, say, 31 seats. Right. So that means to get to 61, they have to bring in other parties. Okay, so you have... What's the next most? Well, that's the United List, which is basically all the Arab parties combining. And Prime Minister Netanyahu, with his rhetoric, really inflamed them and, and, and really insulted them in many ways as not being loyal to the country. 
and even questioned whether there was corruption in the voting, that, that produced a, a lot of votes from the Arab side. So let's say they have about 13, if that's the final number they have. But because uh, Likud and Blue and White both lean right and the Arab parties lean very much left, they're not going to form a coalition with them. So who are they going to bring in? That's where it becomes very dicey and very difficult. You say, well, why don't the two just come together? Because right there, you've got your unity party. You've got your government. You've got between them like 64 seats. You only need 61. Well, there is talk about that. Netanyahu has said, let me do it. I'll lead first. And, and then halfway through, Benny Gantz will take over. And then the blue and white side initially said, well, we'll work with Likud. We'll form a unity government, but not with Netanyahu leading the party. All right. So that that came out. Uh, where is that going to go? And then uh, Lieberman's party, Yisrael Beitenu, with Russian Jews and others, uh, he said, I'm not going to form a government with any of the extreme parties. So I'm not going to work with the ultra-Orthodox Jews who between them have 17 seats. And I'm not going to work with the far left and the Arab parties. I, I, I want a centrist government. So I'll throw myself in if we can form a centrist government. And then you have a yellow shakade with her Yamina party, which is right wing politically, but not uh, religiously. Uh, that's not their primary emphasis. Uh, who will she work with? How is that going to work out? So there are a lot of pieces that still have to fall in place. And I, I think what's impossible is the idea of a third election. It's not going to change anything. It's going to exhaust the country. And the Knesset is kind of paralyzed in the meantime. So they've just been through two elections, five months apart. Uh, enough is enough in that respect. But I, I wanted to share a couple of things with you that are interesting. There's an article in Jerusalem Post today that says this. All right. Uh, in, in, in polls that were done, majority of public want unity government with no ultra-Orthodox parties. 51% of Likud voters and 90% of Blue and White voters don't want ultra-Orthodox parties in government. Now you say, what does that mean? They want to exclude the 17 seats from the government? Yeah, from the, the ruling government, the one that has the most influence. Picture it like you've got a Republican president and a Republican-led Senate and a Republican-led House of Representatives. So they can really push through a lot of what they want to push through with that majority. The, the great, great majority, 90% of the Blue and White Party, and a little over half, 51% of Likud, said they don't want the ultra-Orthodox parties part of that. You say, was that because they hate God and hate the law of God and hate religion? For some, for some, that could be the case. But for, for the majority, it's that they perceive the ultra-Orthodox as having their own interest in mind. They perceive the ultra-Orthodox as just trying to get benefits for their own party that are to the detriment of the rest of the nation, and then they want to impose their views, their values, on the rest of the nation, and, and they're viewed as hypocritical themselves. So there's resistance to that. If it was a matter of live and let live, there would be less resistance, in my view. If, there was, if it was not a matter of the ultra-Orthodox controlling certain aspects of the country and relying on a lot of tax support so, so the men uh, don't have to serve in the military and the men can give themselves to study and prayer all day, which in their mind is a sacrificial thing they do for the good of the nation and preserve the nation. If, if it was more of just, hey, kind of live and let live, then there wouldn't be so much resistance. 
So that's that's one part here. All right. Yeah. Overall, 64 percent of Israeli Jews favor excluding the ultra orthodox parties from the next government. So that's that's a striking number. Now, you say, but what about the seats that they gained? They still have those. In other words, they still have influence. They can vote like anyone else. They can campaign for anything else. They can push for their agenda, but they can't do it in a domineering way because they wouldn't be part of the ruling government. All right. Now, one other interesting article. This is in Haaretz. So this is the very left-leaning Haaretz. And um, the most recent updates, Israel election results. Netanyahu says he wants unity government. Gantz says, I will lead it. And again, Recent news, Cajol Lavon, so that's blue and white, uh, their, their Knesset members say they will sit with Netanyahu, all right? So I just mentioned that, and that was breaking news a little while ago because last I saw they wouldn't sit with him. Now they will sit with him. Is, is a compromise going to be worked out between these parties? And then will they invite Yisrael Beitenu to join as well. So now they'll have a very, very strong majority. What, they'd have like 73 votes or 73 seats, something like that. So and you say, well, how do you get seats? It's by percentage of the vote. So if, if you have 120 seats, all right, then for every, what, nine-tenths of a percent of the vote, you, you get a seat. But the minimum number of seats you can have is four. So in order to get in, you have to have about 3.25% of the vote. So it's like eight-tenths of a percent equals a seat. So for for every 3.25%, that's four seats. That gets you in. If you have less than that, you don't even get in at all. So it's very complex. In a sense, everybody can have a voice and everybody can have a vote and everybody can get involved. And there are many more parties that that put forth their candidates and their positions, and they don't get enough votes to, to get on at all. All right. But this is how it's breaking down. And Netanyahu has considered, continued his anti-Arabic rhetoric and said that they're being incited by the Palestinian Authority to vote the way that they're voting and being pushed in a certain way that's to their detriment. Obviously, the Arabs feel that they're being treated like second class citizens. Uh, what would be an ideal? An ideal to me would be, and again, I, I am not a deep level expert with knowing all the political implications and ins and outs here. But for me, I believe that Likud and Netanyahu government are good for security and are good for international relations and economy, but uh, can be too polarizing and are too much at the behest of the ultra-Orthodox. I don't believe the ultra-Orthodox should have special privileges, but should have to serve like everyone else's citizens within Israel. Therefore, if you could have a government is not influenced by, say, the radical left or the radical right, that to me would be the best case scenario. So Likud, Kachol, Avon coming together with any others that want to join their coalition, but without giving special benefits to the ultra-Orthodox or to the Arabs, just saying, hey, we're going to be straight across the board for everybody. That to me would be a great scenario, but we shall see. 866-34-TRUTH. And as I said in the first half of the broadcast, ultimately the biggest thing is the people of Israel need Yeshua. They need Jesus. They need their Messiah. They need their Savior. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Marcus in California. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Mr. Brown. Uh, my name is Marcus. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure thing. Okay. 
So I had a question with regards to uh, sort of Israel and the whole question of a Jew. Uh, in the Bible, in John 10, 27, and when the Jews approached him, it says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And it says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So Jesus is saying that his sheep have eternal life, and they never perish. And the Bible says that God's the God of living and not the dead which means we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. So how can anyone claim to be a Jew when all men, all flesh is of grass that, that, that'll perish? If, if Jesus says, my sheep never perish, how can someone claim to be a true Jew based on the flesh? Doesn't that, isn't that problematic for people saying they're God's children if God's children never die? Well, what do you mean never die? Uh, every, 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 every believer dies. Every... Jesus says, though you die, you'll live. Are you saying you're never going to physically die? Are you saying that Paul never physically died or Peter never physically died? What I'm saying is when you're born again, the new man is not the old man. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. The old man is not the new man. That's the point. All right. Yeah, I I don't understand what that has to do with being a Jew. I don't understand the connection. God, because... God's God and living not the dead. So to be a true and the Jewish people are still here, preserved, but Jewish people need Jesus to be saved. Well, I, again, That's I don't understand. Right, Jewish people need Jesus to be saved. Yeah, I've said that for 48 years. So, but to be a true Jew, a Jew is not one outwardly, but inwardly, circumcision by the heart and the spirit. So, but, but that's, nothing to do with John, spirit, that's nothing to do with John 10.28, sir. It's completely unrelated to John 10.28. Jesus, sheep, or Jew and Gentile. So to be a Jew fully pleasing in God's sight, yeah, you need to be circumcised inside and outside. But then Paul keeps going, next chapter, next verse, Romans 3.1. What advantage there in being circumcised? A Jew, many, many benefits. Doesn't save you, though. That's the key thing. Doesn't save you. All right, thank you, sir. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Just saw a comment from my friend Scott Volk on Facebook. Hello from Israel. Hey, man. Hope you're having a great time in the land again. I guess you go, what, four times a year at least now? Can't wait to be here with you, Dr. Brown. Can't wait to be back in Israel with you in our tour group next May. 866-34-TRUTH. So to clarify, being a Jew does not guarantee you salvation. Being a Jew does not guarantee you damnation. Being a Jew makes you responsible for whatever knowledge and revelation you have of Scripture, of God. Right? Some people have more responsibility than others to much is given, much is required. But... There are many secular Jews, there are Jewish Buddhists, there are Jewish atheists, there are very traditional religious Jews, but all Jewish people, just like all Gentile people, need Jesus Yeshua to be saved. And at the same time, God has promised Israel that he would keep the Jewish people until the end, regardless of what sins were committed, he would still preserve us, even under discipline and judgment, and that a Jewish Jerusalem will welcome the Messiah back, and there will be a national turning of the Jewish people at the end of the age. But without Jesus without Yeshua, there's no salvation for Jew or for Gentile. We've been preaching that 
day and night for decades, almost 50 years now. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Maurice in Greenwood, South Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. How you doing today, man? Doing very well. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Uh, this isn't in particularly a, you know, a Jewish question, but I've been meeting up with someone who's uh, uh, leaving Catholicism. Okay, t- tell you what, I, I, I hate to do this, but we are super strict on Thursdays. We refuse calls all the time unless they're Jewish-related. So I apologize. Um, call in on a Friday. I, I know this seems rude. Okay, uh, and somehow just got past our, our call screen. I know it seems rude. I apologize for that, all right? But I have to be consistent and fair to all the others that we, we turn away on a Thursday. That's why we, it's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, all right? And if, if you can't call, then just write to our website. And we have a team that answers questions, and, and I get involved with it at different times as well. So my apologies. Again, I don't want to seem rude, but just have to be consistent here. So God bless, but call another day. We'll be glad to help you. All right? Thank you. Okay, we go to Sally in Texas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Hello. Um, I have two questions. One of them is probably silly, but I have to ask anyway. Um, I've never known when you see a Jewish last name that ends in S-T-E-I-N, is it Steen or Stein? It depends. Depends on how they pronounce it. Really? Yeah. It's, okay. I've, I've met Goldstein. I've met Goldstein. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've, I've seen both. Epstein, Epstein, I've seen yeah. both pronunciations over the years. Okay, thank you. I don't feel as silly anymore now. <laughs> okay, but my, my real question, the main reason I wanted to call you, um, I have been reading my King James along with a, uh, uh, the Jewish study Bible, the Tanakh translation, mm-hmm. and there's lots and lots of notes which are very enlightening, mm-hmm. but... I'm beginning to wonder if I should be reading it, because I believe that <clears throat> the Bible is entirely the Word of God, and that um, I should be able to believe anything in it. But when I go to read some of the notes in the, uh, in the Jewish Study Bible, the, for instance, when I was reading about the story of Jericho, and they're marching around it and so forth, um, it said in the footnotes that architects, I mean, um, archaeological uh, finds are witness to the fact that there's no way that Jericho could have been standing at that time. Yeah, so, so here's, here's the deal. The Jewish Study Bible brings together a wide range of Jewish scholarship, but along with traditional insights into the text, it's giving you modern critical understandings as well. So if you're reading it to understand what a contemporary Jewish scholar would say, along with a critical Christian scholar in many texts, you'll find it enlightening. The translation is a brilliant translation, but you'll see at key points it deviates from King James or other Christian translations. So it's good to read if you're reading it for certain information, a lot of times it'll have interesting archaeological information, historical information. I have it among many, 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 many other commentaries. But in point of fact, it is not written from a traditional Jewish 
viewpoint and obviously not from a believing Christian viewpoint, and therefore we'll have critical notes like that. So if it troubles you at all or, or takes away your peace or, or raises questions you don't have answers for, then there's no reason to read it. If you read it in terms of good background information and gives you an idea of what a contemporary Jewish scholar would think, then fine. You'll find it helpful in that regard. But you don't want to read it like a, an evangelical Christian study Bible where the notes are, are there in a way that is going to enhance your faith rather than attack your faith. But in either case, the notes are the notes and the Bible's the Bible. And you always have to remember that. The, the Bible's infallible and, and fully true. The notes are human opinions about what's in the Bible. So you make a big separation okay. there. All right? Okay, so can, do you have an, a suggestion for maybe something else um, that would be uh, more helpful to me? Because the reason I'm reading it is, um, you know, yes, I'm reading the King James. Um, I also pick up my Amplified from time to time because I really mm-hmm. want to understand everything that I'm reading. Yep. But the reason I'm reading the, the, uh, the, study, the Jewish Study Bible is to get more insight into um, Jewish thought. And, yep. uh, and and traditions and so forth. So right, is there right. something else that would be better? Okay. Um, in, in terms of Jewish background to the Old Testament, remember a lot of the Jewish traditions come later, okay? They, okay. they, they come centuries later, and these are later interpretations looking back. But there is a... a a cultural, there is a Bible backgrounds study Bible by John Walton and Craig Keener. Okay. Uh, I believe okay. the title is Bible Background Study Bible. But either, either way, if you just jot down Walton and Keener Study Bible, that will give you okay. a massive amount of archaeological information, ancient Near Eastern information. Uh, the New Testament one, you'll have a lot of Jewish background because then you have much more developed Judaism with Craig Keener. So that would be one that would be highly, highly recommended. Here, it's called the Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible. The Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible. That would be much more helpful for you and written from a believing perspective. And where there are legitimate archaeological questions, it'll sort them out for you. The Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible. All right, uh, tell you what, let's go really quickly. Monique in Greensboro, we're really short on time, but dive right in. Yes, I will do that. And I, I actually usually talk really fast, but I have to say God bless you, just like Paul says, to those who love the Lord in sincerity. And you really do. It shows you hear it in everything. So rare, God bless you. The first question is, you probably answered a million times, but I've never heard it. So if a saved Gentile like myself marries a Jewish person that's Jewish by blood and saved as well, um, even though I know my benefits as being saved in Christ are complete by itself, do we get those benefits, of course, and then plus added, not in the sense that it needs to be there to be complete, but just bonus icing, because the, the other person is Jewish and saved? Do yeah, do so... Or does our marriage get benefits? Yeah, so, so let, let me... And, and God bless you also. Thank you. Yes, in Messiah, we're 100% equal. Uh, in, in Messiah, we have equal standing, male, female, right? Slave, free, Jew, Gentile, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, whoever we are. In Jesus, we are equals. We're equally saved, equally forgiven, equally washed, equally cleansed, equally sons and daughters of God. 
And yet we each bring something unique in our heritage. And there is something of a Jewish person to have a connection back through the generations doesn't make you any more saved, any more forgiven, any more holy. But there is something that is brought in terms of a historic connection and a connection to Israel and the Jewish people as a whole, and even something that uh, can be passed on to the children as they are raised. So it's not a matter of going back under the law or something like that, but rather recognizing that the two bring something together that is very special and very unique and very beautiful. So just like there's male-female complementarity, there can be Jew-Gentile complementarity because of background, tradition, heritage. So yeah, I think it's a beautiful bonus that can be a blessing in many, many ways. Hey, I'm out of time. It sounded like you had another question, but I got to run. Also, uh, to, to Maurice, if you were trying to tell me that someone was converting from Judaism to Catholicism or something like that, I, I'm sorry, I would have taken the call just when you prefaced it by saying it's not Jewish related. I had to jump in just because we've done that to so many other callers that never get that far. So my apologies if it was actually Jewish related. I just didn't have that information. All right, friends, remember, sign up for our Israel tour. It is May 2020, which will be here before you know it. All right. And tomorrow we've got a great broadcast coming your way. I'm going to answer some really interesting Facebook questions. And then everyone listening, watching anywhere near Vancouver, British Columbia, God willing, Saturday, all day, four meetings on Courageous Christianity. Then Sunday morning, join us there. All the info is on my website, sdrbrown.org. Click on itinerary. Change the world.